I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, a safe space for sane approaches to contending with an insane situation. This is where we respond instead of react, where autonomy means not bearing down, but letting go, a break from the cacophony, a moving meditation on making meaning. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Danielle Buten, founder of the Afia Foundation. We met with the hospital director of the one hospital on the island. And when we said to him, what do you need? He said, I don't even understand the question. And I said, when was the last time somebody asked you what you need? And he said, it's been a very, very long time. Buten will share with us how doing good doesn't necessarily start with one's own ideas, but with listening to others. Buten's foundation collects and sends surplus medical supplies from the U.S. to those who need them around the world. She's one of my heroes, and like the rest of us, she's on Team Human. All right, so I need to have an honest, uh, politically incorrect conversation with you guys. I've been thinking about this really since very early in the Trump presidency. I'm trying to think of ourselves as not early anymore. Now we're in the midst of it um, because then I can feel like it's going to end soon. But really from early on, from uh, really about the time he was uh, elected, I've been trying to understand the, you know, the kind of the racism and white supremacy that uh, seems to be so much a part of, of his movement. And as always, I try to understand these things by uh, uh, through empathy, through trying to understand what are they saying? How do they feel? Because no one thinks of themselves as a racist, 
Really, really nobody does. I mean, except if anybody does, it's except non-racists, right? Except people who are actually really, really concerned about racism. Nobody does. So I'm trying to think, what what is going on here? And I think I understand the logic, uh, bet- the logic of the white supremacy that they're that they're promoting. I think what they believe is a version of might makes right. I think what they feel like is, yeah, maybe it's not good that we took slaves. It's not necessarily good that we killed all the Native Americans and took their land. And it's not good that we had, you know, the French and Indian Indian War and all these other things. But we won. Right. We won. The the Western European white patriarchal military society won. And because they won, they are the most civilized. In other it's almost a Spartan sort of idea of Spartan against against Athens. If you have the best weapons, if you have the gunpowder, if you have the generals, it's because you've got the best civilization, the most advanced civilization. As they see it, they went to all these places and basically conquered savages. And when the savages stopped fighting, then they stopped fighting the savages. You know, so if you believe that you are from the most advanced civilization, then why would you want to be promoting all of these loser cultures, all of these ones that lost the various brown and red and and Jewish and and non-Christian and all these other cultures are the ones that lost. So why pretend some kind of cultural equality with all of these other people unless they buy in and prove their merit on our terms. So I think that that from this perspective, you'd look at a black person. Well, and if the black person's going to try to hold on to African culture or black culture, then, well, then they're holding on to their inferior savage culture. But if a black person goes to college, goes to medical school and becomes a doctor, we're not going to be prejudiced against that person because then they're basically as good as a white person because they've adopted the white superior civilization, the Western European civilization that won the wars. You know, and as they say it, all these other races, all these other nations were essentially savages that were either civilized by the Westerners and learned to speak like us and speak English. That's why they keep talking about you've got to learn English. They've learned our culture. They've learned our values. They learned about money. They've learned about the free market. They've learned about entrepreneurialism. I mean, there's nothing that they love more than, oh, gosh, a Mexican-American who loves America and has has succeeded at business, did some kind of, you know, multi-level marketing thing and got enough money to have a house. And yay, see, you've bought in. Now you're one of us. And we're not going to be racist to you because you've adopted Western civilization. But gosh, those Jews and leftists, what are they doing? They're trying to promote these loser cultures. They're trying to promote African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and the whole multicultural soup and all these colors and immigrants. They're, they're promoting something that's lesser 
than white Western European winter culture. And by doing so, they weaken us. They weaken the stock. You know, not just ethnically or, or in terms of DNA, but in terms of, of cultural contamination. You know, so they, you know, anyone who's not part of the singular winning culture, they are, are dangerous and violent. I mean, gosh, look at, at, at the terrorists. They're all from these other places. All those brown people from other places, they're violent. So if you promote these other savage cultures, you're going to um, end up surrendering your otherwise clean and coherent civilization to these uh, uh, decadent um, and and uh, uh, inferior um, sensibilities. It's a scary, scary outlook for sure. It's a sick outlook because it's based in in might makes right in the idea that if you are the toughest player on the block, then you are right by virtue of that toughness. But at least if we understand where they're coming from, that they think they won. And now we're trying to get a piece of their winnings. We're trying to set the clock back to the time before they won. Uh, if we understand that, then I think we can uh, more tactfully engage with the kind of racism that they're expressing and with the, with the uh, uh, cultural oppression that they're exercising without their full knowledge of what they're doing. I think rather than just fight them, we have to help them see what they're doing. Let them understand the logic of might makes right. I mean, shoot, even the, the, the people building our platforms in Silicon Valley, they're still espousing might makes right because they all dropped out of school before they took any of their uh, social justice classes. So they don't even understand things like the tyranny of the majority. They don't understand how uh, how civilizations work. They are, are all from that same disruptive might makes right. Well, if Google beat Yahoo, then Google is right. They're still in that in that value set. Um, so maybe we start by talking to them, start by talking to smart people, uh, you know, people that that uh, uh, have progressive values or, or statedly have progressive values and kind of deconstruct some of this logic there first. And then um, and then with everybody, I think it's going to be the only uh, effective way to challenge the the racism is not by calling people racists, but by helping them understand the logical foundations uh, for their positions and then um, show them the cracks in that logic. I'm Nikki Silvestri and I'm on Team Human. I am Brian Fitzgerald and I'm on Team Human. My name is JT Rogers and I'm on Team Human. I'm Keo Stark and I'm on Team Human. My name is Walter Kern, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. Our guest today, Danielle Buten, flips the might makes right equation on its head by collecting the spoils of capitalism and sending them back to the very people and places that were originally exploited to generate these riches. Danielle, I met you uh, not where we went to high school 
in, in the wonderful, less snobby than today, Scarsdale High School, but uh, at a weird uh, reunion-y award thing for people who've done good stuff, of which you did the greatest things, um, you started a non-profit organization to bring surplus medical supplies from the United States to places that need them, right? Right. And so how do you figure this out? So for 25 years of my life, I've been an occupational therapist, worked in the field of aging, uh, loved being part of people's stories. And then I was recruited to work in managed care, learned a lot about working in a four, Fortune 500 company, and um, then learned what I needed to and was really done. Um, I was done. And so for years prior to leaving that big corporate job, uh, Africa was calling my name. I literally out of nowhere started African drumming and taking West African dance classes and collecting African art. And I remember my father who was European saying to me, what's happening? And I said, I have no idea what's happening. But what was happening was I was being called. I literally believe like the calling was bigger than me at that point. So when I left managed care, I did the one thing that made sense. I bought tickets to go to Tanzania. <laughs> <laughs> and while in the Serengeti, I had the good fortune of colliding with a physician who bawled her eyes out over a glass of wine in a tent, saying, there are no medical supplies here. I can't treat anyone. I left my practice for a month. And Doug, it was one of those moments where you can either bear witness to someone's story and feel, or you can say, I'm going to do something about that story I just heard. And it was a turn in the wind for me. It was a I'm going to act on what I just heard and do something. And then you went to what? Trash bins? <laughs> what did <laughs> yes. you do? Yes, my kids. So you came my, back. My children saw me far too often dumpster diving for boxes, but that's a whole other story. So I came home. I called Partners in Health, an amazing aid organization housed in Boston, and said, I need help. I know how to lead. I know how to design. I know how to execute. I have no idea how to run. Most people, when they start a non-for-profit, started in a world of wisdom they know. I knew nothing about international healthcare. Um, but I felt in my soul I could do this and I wanted to do it. And I had huge passion for the people I met in Africa. And they said, we'll tutor you. And so they gave me their Haiti team. They gave me folks on their staff. I went to Bellevue and they donated 27 pallets of inventory that per regulation exposed to water had to be discarded, and that was the launch of Afia. So the stuff was actually fine, but by regulation it had to go. Yeah, so here's the best kept secret. The best kept secret is that we have regulations in this country that require certain medical supplies to be discarded regardless of whether or not they were used. So ORs in every single state in our nation after a surgery, regardless of whether or not the supplies on the back table were used, they have to be thrown away because they were exposed to the medical field of the patient. Most of these supplies are still wrapped. Right. And those might be regulations that were actually lobbied for by the medical industry just to keep them uh, keep their supplies being sold. So we found a way to rescue it. And, you know, the potential is boundless. It's medical equipment in hospitals. It's 
doctors retiring and them donating their entire office to us. It's people dying. And when someone has a death with dignity at home, no one will take that bed, that mattress, those wheelchairs, the commode back, but we will. And so there is this constant circle of giving these supplies up so that life can follow their lead. And then you can't just drop ship them on Tanzania. No. You've got to give them to someone and, and distribute them. So how does that work? We've become very skilled at vetting really carefully and being extremely cautious about who we partner with, who we can trust. There was one, this is a good story, there was one country uh, whose hospital turned to us and asked for help, major teaching hospital. And this nation is known for corruption. And so we said to them, if we send to you, we have people who work for us in your capital, which was like ridiculous. We, you know, we don't have that. But we knew that if the belief was that someone would walk around and look for our boxes with our labels, they might take what they do with those supplies more seriously. And they ended up uh, creating a warehouse stockroom to guard the supplies because of these people walking around the city, apparently, um, looking for our boxes, but it protects the poor. You know, like the bottom line is I vet and my staff vet very carefully because these supplies are for the poor. They're so that they can access healthcare and we're going to fight for them. And then so you go there with the stuff or you just send it with uh, in a plane Depends. Depends on what the scenario is. So we've got long-term partners. For example, the Tanzanian People's Defense Forces. They have some of the best hospitals I've seen in Africa. And so we've gone to those hospitals to meet with their staff, to get lists. The way AFIA works is we support the infrastructure of the existing healthcare system. I'm not interested in setting up a shingle, creating a clinic on top of all the other clinics. I want to turn to providers who are practicing in terrible circumstances and say, what do you need to deliver care so that you're whole? And then maybe these people will stay. We can we can disincent the exodus of really smart people if they have the tools they need to deliver their trade. So we go for that reason and to really see like the whole picture. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this was on a site visit. I um I saw a cook who was preparing food for a huge AIDS hospital in Malawi. And he was preparing this goat with like a normal kitchen dinner knife. And I said, this is going to take you three days to cut up this goat with that knife. Why aren't you asking us for like a big butcher knife or a meat cleaver? And they turned to me and said, we thought it was only medical. But like that is medical. The items that contribute to well-being in healthcare for me are all medical. And that's part of like my OT background is I'm learned to think, I've learned to observe and see big, and then we treat with the items that support that. Right. Well, the difference between what you're doing and most social justice initiatives now, particularly social justice initiatives by well-meaning, smart college graduate millennials, you know, and, and Gen Xers, is uh, we tend to look at a situation and then want to start a whole new thing. Oh, I'm going to make a place that does this, and people can come in and they'll get that rather than the more um, selfless, but ultimately um, contributive uh, approach where you look at what's going on out there already and how can I remove obstacles or give them help? 
which is it's much it's selfless because you don't get quite the same oh you know i just built the the you know danielle buten uh, uh you know school right. for unwed mothers <laughs> no, or <thank> whatever <laughs> i'd rather stock the shelves with gauze <laughs> right <laughs> right right but your help you're just it's it's uh it's funny it's what it's what uh a good company it's the way a good company treats its its staff it's you know, if, if you were running Macy's or something, you should be thinking, how can I help my salespeople? You know, you're just doing customer service for the front line, which is kind of what you're doing. You're saying, okay, they, they kind of need a back office. They need a, a, they just need support. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, I think you're making a really great observation and it's providing care for people who are often, I mean, the poor in some of the nations we serve are unseen and unheard, but so are their healthcare providers often. So it's offering support and a huge applause to those who choose to stay and to immerse in the community they've been raised often. So a good example is lately, we've been very involved in Lesvos and in the Syrian refugee crisis. And so we went to Lesvos. We met with the hospital director of the one hospital on the island at Mytilene. And when we said to him, what do you need? He said, I don't even understand the question. And I said, when was the last time somebody asked you what you need? And he said, it's been a very, very long time. And then he said, I need 14,000 pairs of gloves. And like, I remember just like take it cook my breath away because I, the last thing I expected from someone in the EU was I need gloves. I expected we need a new x-ray machine. We need better ultrasound for maternal care. And the needs were basic. And he was so thrilled that he ran around the hospital collecting lists from every single department. And then we went to the port police who were running boats to rescue people out of water and said to them, what do you need? And they said, we have nothing on our boats. Not one boat had a defibrillator. Not one boat had cardiopulmonary resuscitation supplies when they're pulling children out of the water. They had nothing. So there is, and they were so surprised that someone from the U.S. would come and say, Give me your wish list. Like that's what I'm going to start packing on these containers to you. But we need your wish lists. So then, is it are most of these efforts sustainable? In other words, I mean, refugee camps are not sustainable. Obviously, as as an approach, no. I mean, yes, the people there deserve medical care and and basics. But it's uh, on on another hand, I mean, it's medical supplies, but it's a band aid for situations that are. It just don't work. I mean, an African country can't have its medical infrastructure based on receiving surplus supplies through a nonprofit foundation. However, they will always need to order supplies, right? So in Mm. looking at the infrastructure of a hospital system, there will always be a need for supplies. What if ordering those supplies from us is less costly and far more effective for them than ordering from other countries where they may or may not get what they're asking for and what they need. Right. And what if not throwing out millions of dollars of medical supplies every year uh, is a more uh, efficient use of the industrial (laughs) culture? Right. So we are contributing to, I mean, we have spared almost 8 million pounds of supplies from unnecessary waste in this country in the past 10 years since we've started. So what if while doing that, we were able to find a far more cost-effective mechanism for those to those partners to access supplies with better product than they would have through normal streams. 
And what if they need stuff like morphine? I mean, can you get them like narcotics and deal <laughs> with the legalities can't. of that? We you can't. can't. No, we can't. And that's a really good question. And that's really hard because so many of these phenomenal families who donate end-of-life supplies to us, for people who die at home, they often have morphine packs for end-of-life um, care, and we can't take it. I mean, we're not approved to take it. We have sent some medications with the help of flights where we had lots of donated insulin and tetanus, for example, in the recent crisis in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, where they had no tetanus and no insulin first few weeks following the storm. But big gun narcotics and those kinds of medications, unfortunately, were not sanctioned to hold or ship. I don't know, speaking of Puerto Rico, because it's the conversation that, it's what came up when I saw you in the bagel store earlier this week and decided to do this conversation. I mean, that's the thing for people who don't, aren't listening. I mean, we live in the same little town here. We so live in sweet. Pacing, which is sweet, but <laughs> we're neighbors. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, Team Human begins at home. It really does. And uh, live face-to-face, look in the eyes, people. I mean, if you were here with her, you'd understand you're with, we're with a real human here. I know there's, they're not many. They're hard to find. <laughs> but it was like, oh my God, yeah, here's one. Found another. Found another. Um, so, but what we started talking about was you've been in, doing Puerto Rico for the last what three months, I guess, since the uh, since the hurricane, and it's not being well taken care of by our our government, is it? Well, so here's here's the beauty of the work that I feel really privileged to lead is that we are this lean group doing monstrous work. And so because we are not a huge organization, I don't have 16 layers to dive through before I can act. So when this hurricane hit, it was very clear to me that we were going to act and we were going to act fast. And so I reached out to a partner of ours, UJA Federation of New York, and said, we need help with planes there's no way we're going to get any containers into port. The ports were clogged up. They didn't have the power to work the cranes. It was a disaster. And so UJA turned to their donor network and asked people to consider donating flights on private planes and corporate jets. And we have flown with their connections and ours over 25 flights into the islands. We created our own version of a relief organization. And then we turned to Greater New York Hospital Association And they have been amazing as well. And they donated millions of dollars worth of medication and supplies. And this little triad of organizations created a fierce approach to the delivery of aid via air. We packed these private planes. We met with one physician and Dr. Michelle Carlo in Puerto Rico who ran aid. And she went island-wide to find out what people needed and got the medical school to send doctors to every single part of Puerto Rico to deliver aid with us. And the response has been remarkable. So when she threw up a flag and said, Mayday, I need help, we started flying aid in. But what about the big hospital boat that's there? Didn't we send in the Navy, send a giant thing? Oh, yes, the U.S. Comfort. Yeah, U.S. Comfort. Yeah. So why so can't people just go on the gangplank and get treated? Um, because nobody knows how A. First of all, Phones aren't consistently working, so the the capacity to call the ship and say, I have a patient I'd like to get to you is interfered with by virtue of cell, power, electricity, one. Two, most people on the mainland had no idea how to refer patients to the U.S. comfort. 
Three, it seemed to be functioning really well as like a floating hotel. So there were some serious infrastructure problems with the U.S. comfort. And so, again, what we did was we collected needs. And then one of the most beautiful, beautiful projects that the Department of Justice created, their prosecuting attorneys were going on recess and they decided instead of going on recess, we are going to send all of you to nursing homes throughout the island to do a spot assessment. Do they have generators? Do they have food? Do they have water? Do they have the supplies they need? And Doug, we went with them and we could not believe some of the situations that we saw. I mean, they're initiating criminal investigations to some. One woman had gangrene, like up to almost her knee. Another older woman was lying in a bed, clearly had been in her diaper for five days. And we're coming in with the supplies that have been donated to us from people who have died here that we could then fill these nursing homes with. But we were part, we were asked to be a part of this elderly task force. And the work we've done there has been exquisite. So why were these people not getting cared for? Because there's no infrastructure there right now. And the infrastructure that once existed was rattled from the storm. And there are very few, very poor processes in place. So it's not like the nurses in the nursing homes were mean and saying, oh, we're not going to give you a new diaper. It's that they didn't have one. They didn't have anything. I went searching in one of the nursing homes for a walker. I started like pulling off boxes to try to find a walker because this one woman never got off the couch. Like it's time to walk with a walker. <laughs> Today's your day to learn how to right. walk with a walker. Um, and I found one. But back like to just find Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> back, to, back to my roots. But finding the basic items that people needed. I mean, one man who I walked into his room could only move his eyes. And I turned to the nurse and I said, what does he look at all day? This room is dark. They'd no power. They'd no fans. The generator didn't work. And I said, just lies here in bed all day with nothing. And I said, at the very least, go outside, cut flowers from bushes, put them in his handlebars on the bed frame so that he can see color and he has some reason to move his eyes. It was just tragic. It was tragic. And it's, I mean, you would you would chalk it up to economic and logistical problems more than anything else? Yes, and there are some people who are opening these homes, as you would suspect, who are doing so to make money from the government and should never be running a nursing home. And I'm so grateful to the Department of Justice because they wanted to find those and they wanted to make sure that people were getting good care. I mean, what an exquisite way for them to use their time during this recovery effort. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make you get political because I know you depend on all different parts of, of the of the world and the, the system to do the things you do. But, I mean, when I watch the news and see, oh, our administration says that, you know, 60 people died, but then the New York Times says a thousand people died. It's like something or or... When I see a new tax law comes out and Puerto Rican products are going to be charged a 12% import tax as if they're from another country. I know. Is, is that what you do to a place that's part of America, already bankrupt, dealing with a huge humanitarian crisis? Do you then impose a tariff on their goods? What's going on? People are really discouraged. Um, and in the beginning, they would ask, is anyone going to help us? I'll give you an island close by, went to St. Thomas. 
and their major regional health center. The walls have caved in. The ceiling has exposed wires. There's mold on the wall. One of the lead physicians at this major hospital turned to me and we delivered tetanus vaccines. They requested a number of things that they vitally needed. And she said, can you help us with mold? And I said, that's, that's the government's job. Like, that's not what we do. And she said, but no one's coming. So um, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. You know, I've heard of families where someone they love died and they had to bury their loved one in their backyard in the weeks following. The death rate, I think, is significantly higher than anyone is reporting. The deaths due to a lack of power, it's very hot in Puerto Rico, um, and dehydration. There are significant contributors to death, especially in vulnerable populations. And I think um, to the benefit of people I've met in Puerto Rico, they are hardy and resilient. I mean, resilient in ways I can't even describe. People living without power for months and they still manage to smile and show up and try to do their jobs. And it's remarkable to me. Well, that's what Trump said. They're an energetic, uh, fiery little people. Yeah, they have many choices, don't they, at this point? I, I mean, it's remarkable that that's the choice they make. Right. Is the one of resilience. They could easily choose to stay home and let this disaster completely overrun their lives, right. but they're not. Well, the resilience comes from a place that most Americans don't I feel, don't have access to. When we had Sandy happen here, three days into a power outage with temperatures going down to maybe the 40s, three days into it, in Westchester, there were fistfights on the gas lines. There were people fighting over generators on the back of a truck at the Home Depot in Yonkers. It's like, my God, three days into it and the the social fabric is gone where they're what two months into floods and nothing and they're resilient enough to work together to try to solve their problems you know you wonder what's the what's the difference why does that happen i think they live in community there and i think that's one of the lessons i've learned from traveling abroad are the cultures who really live in an embedded community you know and this really came to life for me. I was in a cab a number of years ago and the cab driver was from Ghana. We were driving around New York City. And he said, do you know your neighbor's names? And I said, that's such an interesting question for you to ask me. Why? And he said, I'm struck by the fact that people don't know the people who live around them here. And at home, we know everybody. And if someone's sick, we take care of them or we cook for them or we bring them into our house but here you have a very, very different life. And it was a real aha moment for me to hear him describe this because everything I see abroad is about an immersion in community. And it's all for one and one for all. And they're not fighting over the generators on the back of the truck. Well, people, I mean, people here make money so that they don't need community. That's the first thing you do. You get your money, you put up your fence, you get your fake estate in the suburbs, and then you can pay for things rather than depend on other people, as if that's a superior situation to be in. It's, um, 
it, you know, it's amazing for me. This just brings me back to when I'm in Africa and I've done a lot of site visits in Africa. I am so struck by um, how much people who seem to have nothing have in terms of just the value and the beauty and the love that is shared in a lifetime. Um, it It's astounding to me every single time I'm able to experience it. It's very, it's a very different life. It's a, yeah. you know, and if you look at it from afar and I mean, a good example of this, a good example of this was I was traveling with a reporter after the Haiti earthquakes in a really rough camp in downtown Port-au-Prince. And um, three seconds earlier, a kid had stolen my Blackberry. I was taking a picture and he ran by me and he took it and I was like, bye-bye Blackberry. There it goes. And the reporter said, how are you going to be? You're here for another week. And I said, I'll be okay. I'll figure it out. I don't know. I'll figure it out somehow. And she was frozen with the possibility of not having any kind of way to communicate. But then she said, this place is so sad and so terrible. And I said, I want to know what you see because that's not what I'm seeing. Mm. And I said, I want you to look over there to the left. The fact that people put colored pebbles leading into their tents means that they're inviting people in and other people put ferns on the top of their tents to create colorful rooftops. And all these women created a communal pot to put their chickens in to make a stew. And community is coming to life here in a really gorgeous way. So I want you to like shift the lens that you're seeing this with. And so that's what like these trips, if you allow yourself to see it in the midst of disaster, there's such beauty in terms of the human spirit and outreach to each other. Right. There's this, I think there's this false belief that to have that kind of uh, indigenous community, um, you're going to end up poor. You're going to end up without jobs and factories and progress and technology. Where I would argue that the poverty in these places is less sort of some intrinsic quality of community than the fact that these places were indefensible against, you know, Western European colonialism against the people who didn't have community and just wanted to take things over. If you're hanging out and you're nice and you're welcoming people with colored pebbles, you're not ready to fight off, you know, British people with muskets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And now they're living in the devastation of post-colonialism. You know, they're, the, the larger social fabric was destroyed and now all that's left is goodwill. That's a really good point. I was um, I was in a Maasai village in Tanzania, and I sat with this woman who was beading. They do beautiful beadwork and jewelry. And I said to her through a translator, your work is absolutely exquisite. Tell me about how you learn how to bead. And her eyes just dropped to the floor. And I said, what just happened? And she said, well, I, you know, it's nice that I can make necklaces, but you can read. Mm. And I said, what does that mean? Do you need to read? You know, do you need to, like, what does that mean? Like, you're comparing our cultures and our lives. One is esteemed. I'm not sure that, like, reading is going to be helpful in the tasks of a lifetime that construct a life here. But yet, what I was able to do was so much more valuable in her eyes. And there I sat with this woman who was a master jeweler. And it was just a very telling moment of, who told you that that would be the better way? Like, where does that belief come from? 
And I tried to go there with her, but it was really hard. The translator wasn't as helpful as I wanted right. her to be. Well, and it's hard to go, the, go that way here, too. If I argue something like that in an academic conference, I'm going to get yelled at for, uh, uh, you know, uh, retrieving uh, Rousseau's noble savage, you know, and that it's, a, it's a yet another uh, kind of European romantic fantasy that these natives pre-civilization are somehow more connected to their souls and goodness. But maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Just don't say it at school. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting seeing these worlds juxtapose, and we see it a lot with, you know, I see it a lot with the work of Athia. I see it a lot there where... Uh, we, when we first started 10 years ago, a good example is we were never asked. And this, this is an indication of progression. I think in a really good way, um, we were never asked for dental supplies. And 10 years later, we're asked for chairs and compressors and panoramic x-ray machines. And just all of a sudden, there's this progression and this competency that's coming out of it. It's changing. I mean, I really see a change in what we're being requested of than we saw 10 years ago. And what about here? You know, aren't there places in Alabama and Mississippi without panoramic x-rays? There's tons of people who, especially in the in the declining healthcare uh, system, I mean, you can't, if you can't care for your teeth and you're looking for a job, and then your breath gets bad, and then your teeth fall out. You, good luck getting employment, and you, and then good luck paying for a dentist that you can't find anyway. You know, there's a there's a downward spiral right here at home that seems to be attributed at least in part to the lack of medical stuff. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and we. Um some of the supplies were restricted with, right, because of the regulations. Right. So we can't really reintroduce some of those back in. But what we did post-Hurricane Sandy was the Russian medical community in the Rockaways was decimated. And they had panels of thousands and thousands of people from Russia who they were the primary care providers for. And Robinhood funded us to be able to restore their medical practices with patient exam tables, waiting room chairs, EKGs, the, the materials, not the gauze, the sutures, the stuff that had come to us through medical systems, but rather the items and the medical furniture they needed. And we helped many practices come back to life after Sandy destroyed them. So we've done some domestic work. We haven't done a lot. The regulations make it harder to do a lot here. Right. The regulations kind of dictate the loophole that you're going to leverage here. Exactly. And then do you get stuff from all over the U.S. or just New York, really? New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. When hospitals close, it's an amazing opportunity for us to go in and then like really find a home for as much as we possibly can. I, that's a big, big bonus for us. But, you know, one of the other things that we do, I'm, I'm segueing, but one of the things that we do domestically that I think is also really beautiful is because I'm an occupational therapist, I believe in giving people who are normally not given a chance to volunteer a really big, hearty chance. So every day we have volunteers from treatment programs for people on the spectrum with developmental disabilities, people with long-term psychiatric illness, People who have been in and out of the criminal system, 
jail, foster care, in trouble with the law, and they come in in the mornings, and I supervise graduate occupational therapy students who work with them. And so for the first time, even ever, these folks are hearing that they're needed and they're appreciated and they're saving someone's life who they'll never know abroad by helping us sort and pack supplies. And it is a home of goodness for these folks. And the stories of people kind of coming back to life through the giving has been remarkable. And then we brought these supplies to nursing homes so that really frail older adults can also experience being a global health volunteer and packing up and matching supplies. And recently at one nursing home, one older adult said, I feel like my life matters again for the first time in years. And I think, you know, I I think the work of Afia allows others to feel needed. And it's such a powerful, silent partner in this work domestically for us. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting model. I mean, I feel like the thing that's most replicable for listeners is not necessarily to start a, uh, a, a medical recycling distribution program of their own, although they're welcome to, but to follow this, this uh, strategy of you're not extracting value labor or whatever you're not looking for funding and as much as kind of hacking each thing you need it's like okay we need people to work how can we get people to work in a way that's going to be helping them so you find oh well there's this population of people that need something to do and then there are these people that need training so now you can run an ot training facility so the ot's are getting trained in how to train people and help people. Right. The people are getting helped. The work that they're doing isn't just, you know, coloring in stencils or something, whatever OT people do, but it's, you know, it's uh, the work it's of bringing medical supplies. It's meaningful, profound work. And it's, imp- exactly. And one of my- But it doesn't just feel meaningful. No. Do you know what I mean? This yes. Is, you're, you're creating a complex ecosystem of aid. Yes. Yes. With many hands in it. This is a big wheel. Um, And the wheel just gets bigger and bigger. I mean, one of my, this is one of my favorite stories about this specific component. We had this man, Anthony, come to us from one of the treatment programs. And he said, I want to get a job. And I said, why do you want to get a job? Like, what's that? What does that mean for you? And he said, I need to make money. He was in his early thirties. I've never gone on a date and I want to go on a date. And I don't want my parents to give me money for a date. Okay, Anthony, where do you want to work? I want to get a job at Home Depot. So he practiced in the shelves, him stocking and warehousing and getting used to what he would do at Home Depot. We wrote him a great letter of recommendation. He got a job at Home Depot. He said his goodbyes to us. Awesome. Fast forward a few months later, I'm in the city. My daughters are dancing at Alvin Ailey. I'm running back and forth in the city to get them from dance classes. And all of a sudden, I see this man and it was pouring out under an awning in a gray suit. And I turn and it's Anthony. And I, I, my mouth just dropped open. I said, Anthony. And he always called me Danny. And he said, Danny. And we gave each other a big hug. And I said, Anthony, you've got flowers. What's going on? And he said, I'm going on my first date. Oh my gosh. And I just sat there and I could start crying now. And I just (laughs) sat there and stared at him and said, 
I am so happy I collided with you today. And he said, I can't believe that we're running into each other. And I wished him a beautiful first date and got into my car and bawled my eyes out because that's where the beauty of this work can affect so many lives abroad, but it also has such an enormous handprint here. And I think we listen really well. Like, I think the essence of this work is that everyone who wants to come in and be seen is going to be seen and they're going to be listened to and they're going to be regarded because every single person deserves that. You're doing occupational therapy on the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's that same approach. Yeah. It's that approach. You do. Yeah, because there's so much... uh, uh, I mean, I feel like a yoga teacher saying it, but there's so much trapped energy. You know, it's just it's it's it just needs to find ways to circulate back through the system, and that always involves finding other points of contact, other people, and then you can arrange. That's a beautiful way to look at it. I agree. And I life agree. Happens. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't occur like this concept of just seeing life in a very linear way. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate for me. Like there are possibilities and options and ways to do something that show up every single day. And it's, you know, my, my amazing team, they're just like running (laughs) or just running (laughs) because the next beautiful project or someone coming in just like emerges for us. I mean, a good example is recently, in the past year, we were able to work with the IDF in Israel mm. through a group that came in and made introductions. And next thing we know, we're able to work with them to get medical supplies to the south of Syria where no one will know where any of these supplies end up. But it it's all about like people presenting possibilities. And we just, we jump on those possibilities if they're going to save people's lives and we believe in pursuing them. Just pursuing what has potential for sea legs. Are there other groups? Have you, have you found other groups using some of your models? There are a number of medical supply recovery organizations in the United States, and everyone has their own kind of iteration. Some use volunteers, some don't use volunteers. Some do more with equipment, some do less with equipment. Everyone kind of iterates in their own way, similar to how many hospitals have their own methodology and their own way of reaching out and acquiring and retaining patient loyalty. Um, We're all very different in how we iterate. And I think um, Afia is really different in that we are hearty and invested in this wish list concept and then listening to the end user and then being a formative partner in establishing the list of supplies that they need But also, Doug, you know, I'm an OT, so we will come up with supply collections that we may not get from a hospital. I did a site visit in Malawi, and I saw midwives delivering HIV-positive women barefoot. And when I said to the midwife, you know, you're such a smart nurse, you know precautions, what are you doing barefoot? She said, I don't have money for shoes or for surgical boots. So the OT said, let's go get rain boots. Let's get kids to donate rain boots. And so now we have teens all over the country collecting and sending us rain boots. So now these midwives in Malawi are bedazzled, you know, running through the bush (laughs) in neon green. But it's phenomenal 
as an adjunct to the medical products that are needed. So that's like the OT piece. And then what also makes us, I think, really different is we have an enormous amount of people who are just challenged in life volunteering with us. And I take that group. We have lots of, you know, well, college kids and high schools and soccer teams coming in and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. But this group of people who just life is hard, mm-hmm. um, I take their experience really seriously at Afia. But do you find that that uh, there's groups from other fields that then come? Like, uh, remember there was this girl at the at the synagogue in this town who was um, trying to raise money to send bicycles to people so they could make it to the village to get water, you know, and back to where they lived. And I think I sent her to you to, you know, to find yeah, out how you yeah, did yeah, what yeah. you did. And she's, I think, still going. I think that's still happening because a bicycle makes a hole. That's like getting a Mack truck. It is. You know? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> so that, that, that was, a, it's a good program. But I mean, are there people using, you know, so they'll look at the way you use volunteers or the way you enlist or recruit um, different sorts of assistants? Are there people that then model that and bring it to other areas? Have you had, I'm trying to think of an example. When I was at, National Theater Institute. I remember Robert Redford came and visited this place, the O'Neill Theater Center, because he wanted to set up something like that in film. And then, of course, he goes and does Sundance on there on the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center model. Are there people who've come and and just to see what you do to then say, okay, let's take some of these best practices and bring it over to our our company or our organization? Or that's such an interesting question. Because you must go to conferences of good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I do, I do. And often they end up becoming part of our Afia family. Um, they end up weaving in with the work that we do, which is really interesting. Um, uh, we, we've been, I think pretty good at helping to find roles and non-traditional roles for people who walk in. A good example is one man who I did I did um, a TV interview and he saw it and came in and said, uh, I'd like to help you. I was a warehouse manager for a major products company. And instead of like replicating because he knew how to warehouse, he has mentored the men who work in our warehouse and he has been invaluable in that mentorship. So it's kind of the inverse of such, but we also have found ways to support other folks doing amazing work with our supplies. So a good example is um, a high school of kids could be going on a trip. They could be going to, let me think of one that happened recently. A group of kids went to Ghana. And as part of what they were going to do in Ghana, their teacher came to us and said, can the kids bring medical supplies to a local clinic and use that as an experience so that can you make an Mm. introduction and therefore like they go, they deliver the supplies. And so we've done that with groups frequently. We're doing more with the rotary around that as well. Now we've done it with people who build bridges abroad. And so now they're bringing medical supplies as they build the bridge. So they're finding ways to kind of embed our supplies into the work that they're doing more than the model replication. And then for, uh, for people listening, it feels like the, the, I mean, sure people can go and they should go to afi.org and, you know, donate or plug in and see what's going on and, you know, read the stories. But, uh, kind of more importantly, is there a, a an Afia, uh, sensibility 
that people can kind of bring with them in the way that they kind of look at the world, look for opportunities? Is there a a, a an approach that that mm. we can model in what we do? In other words, even if there's just an exercise, if for for the next two days everybody's listening to this broadcast looks at the world around them with what sensibility to to That's then a great make shifts. That's a great question. Um, I, I have a few reactions to that. One is, I believe we are hearing, I believe we each hear like these exquisite nuggets every single day. I believe ideas are just like dancing amongst us and that we need to notice. And so if we're on our phones and we're getting on a train and we miss the fact that uh, something is happening with someone who is homeless to our left that actually could be our next great idea because we've been so focused on what is in front of us, we miss the ideas that dance. So I would say be awake and aware to life, just to yours, to what's around you as you walk through it, and that will feed you and serve as a catalyst of ideas and and stuff starts to resonate. That's number one. Number two, be very careful about the voice you listen to and you welcome. So it could have been very easy for me after launching Afia, I knew nothing about what I was doing. I learned really fast, but I really knew nothing to have listened to the voice. And after getting pneumonia, the first warehouse I worked in had no heat. So I had pneumonia, I had infused capital in starting my own non-for-profit, I was exhausted, I didn't have a staff, and I could have easily listened to the, you don't know what you're doing, what are you doing, you need to like, game's up, like stop. But instead, I, I told that voice to just stop talking to me, like go find another source, I'm not listening to you, I'm gonna listen to the voice inside that says, this can work and you can do this and you can do this. And I welcomed that voice, every single day for the first year of this project's launch. I didn't listen to the other voice. I didn't welcome it ever. And the third is be seriously grateful for the simple wins. There is such grace in the simple wins. Um, and, And listen carefully. Like the one thing I've learned through this work um, is how to listen in a way I don't think I've ever listened in my entire life. And I, you know, I'm a clinician. I'm used to listening to people, but I listen with an ear that is different from anything I've ever done before. And people just tell me stories. I just, I feel like I collect stories and the more stories I hear, the more clear what I need to do is next. And if I only listen to the first three seconds of a story, I would miss like this is what I'm going to do because I would only be responding on the beginning few steps. So that's my initial set of responses. But I think I think putting down a phone and being awake and aware to one's life and to the ideas that dance is key in the launch of life that is meaningful and rich for someone. Well, that's definitely what we're trying to do here. I mean, Team Human was started because I wanted to stop talking and writing so much and kind of go on what Hillary Clinton would call a listening tour, you know, <laughs> yeah. once a week, listen to somebody for an hour and really hear and, and use what I've got, you know, what I've developed as a platform for other people rather than just more Doug. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Although Doug's pretty great. <laughs> well, thanks. 
That's why you come. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being on Team Human. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the founder of Afia, Danielle Buten. You can find out more about her work reclaiming medical supplies for refugees and others at afiafoundation.org. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human friends. This is Stephen here. I also want to thank you for listening to this week's show and a special thanks to our new subscribers via Patreon. If you'd like to help sustain this show, visit patreon.com slash teamhuman. There you'll find various subscription levels and rewards. We'd also appreciate a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. So share the show, spread the word. This week's episode features music. Thanks to Fugazi and Discord Records. In the middle, first you heard Team Human friend and guest Are You Serious? Followed by another Team Human friend and guest, Stacco Trancoso. Visit teamhuman.fm for links and stay tuned for announcements on Team Human live events. My name is Stephen Bartolome and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.